Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 130. And today, my guest is Ed Maunder. Hey, Ed, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm brilliant. We were just having a, a discussion offline about, um, you know, the interesting time zone differences that we have, and you're in, in New Zealand, of course. Um, why, why don't you give us... Um, a bit of an overview as to um, you know what you're doing over there in New Zealand and uh, what your interests are, and then we'll we'll jump straight into this uh, this topic I want to get into. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I um, I've been in New Zealand originally from the UK uh, for the last two and a half years, working on my PhD. Mm. Uh, my my PhD works with heat stress and endurance athletes. Um, I'm based at AUT, which is in in Auckland. Um, mm supervised by Professor Andrew Kilding and Dr. Dan Plews. Um, I, I originally moved, came over here to New Zealand because I'd done an internship here as part of my undergraduate degree, which is at the University of Bath. I uh, really enjoyed my time here and um, decided it was a good place to come and live, good place to, to study and work and um, thought I would come back. Uh, whilst I'm here, I'm also working in our endurance performance clinic. So I see a lot of athletes of variety of performance standards come through our lab um, do metabolic testing primarily uh, related to endurance performance um, with those and I do a little bit of consulting and coaching with endurance athletes as well on the side nice. so, like, excellent yeah well I've had um, it's an interesting thing I get on this podcast is I get to talk to all sorts of amazing people all over the world um and um some of which will be people that you've bumped into and definitely there's names i see in some of your papers um that i've interviewed uh and also from bath of course uh, people like Prof dylan thompson and james betts and dr javi gonzalez and and so on um loads of talent from where you originated and of course over um, in in New Zealand, um, some phenomenal research coming out of AUT, and this actually is where I wanted to get into with you. I was um, well quite some time ago, actually. I, 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 I had the pleasure of co-authoring a number of papers, uh, a position stand on ultra endurance nutrition for ultra endurance, um, and also another thing I'm I'm working on um, about nutrition for endurance athletes and in both scenarios I came across your your work and there were two papers in particular that um, really really piqued my interest which is why I wanted to get you on and have a good chat with you and it, it largely relates really to this sort of the whole idea of of how athletes particularly endurance or ultra endurance athletes fuel their activities and there's something that as nutritionists or researchers in nutrition, we all get very interested in, of course, you know, um, and there's some big, really quite polarized debates about some of this stuff, whether it's, you know, um, uh, ketogenic diets or, um, you know, carbohydrates being, you know, king, or are they the, the sort of the evil, you know, um, that some people will label them. Um, and, then there's the whole idea of of what's you know the general opinion about something as opposed to what's specifically appropriate for an individual which brings me to one of the key themes of my whole podcast and my approach is is you know the need to differentiate you know sort of theory from from reality 
and contextualize this to specific situations. And uh, another paper that you'd written had done that very well, where we look at fuel usage or substrate utilization in um, elite triathletes, Ironman triathletes specifically, um, which was all very good. So I want to dig into a lot of, of this. So why, you know, why, why did you decide to get into researching um, fat oxidation or substrate utilization and particularly sort of in this area with endurance athletes? You know, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's super interesting, but why, you know, what got you into this? Yeah, it's a good, uh, good question. I think the, the physiology of, of endurance sport was something that, that piqued my interest very strongly as I was coming through my undergraduate and uh, postgraduate degrees. And I think that there is a lot of scope for exercise physiologists to intervene in that space with, with athletes. I think the exercise physiologists role can be limited in, in many domains within within endurance sport. There's obviously a whole team around um, good high-level endurance athletes with psychology and um, biomechanics, strength and conditioning and, and coaching itself. And I think that metabolism is one of the elements of an endurance athlete that an exercise physiologist can intervene and really be, be a useful addition to um, to an endurance athlete's team. Yeah, and uh, I mean, fuel utilization is fascinating, and uh, I'll get you to unwrap this a bit. But you know, just like you know, cars and motorbikes and trains and airplanes and so on, there is a, a limit to how much fuel you know the, the these machines can you know can carry and utilize. And then we start to get interested in fuel mixtures because that influences things like performance and or efficiency. And yep. we have exactly the same interests as it comes to human beings. I mean, you know, we can't necessarily engineer uh, the engine in quite the same way as we can with those, you know, combustion engines and, and, and so on. But it is really interesting how we can influence how the body uses fuel through training and nutritional strategies, um, yep. which is something I want to get into, get into with you because I think this represents well two really exciting areas one you know it's something that exercise physiologists can play a role in rather than just doing sort of i say quotes unquote bog standard sort of vo2 max tests we now have got things like fat max testing and variations on on that looking at substrate utilization rather than just performance or you know yeah. cardiovascular health um but also for nutritionists like myself, um, and I happen to have metabolic testing kit and so on, and and really find this stuff fascinating when you start to assess individual athletes' um, metabolism, um, which clearly does vary from person to person. And, and therein lies um, sort of two things. For me, that points out the fact that we need to be careful about just looking at, you know, the average sort of interpretation of, of this that we see in textbooks and papers, you know, because obviously science is published means and for good reason. Um, but we don't necessarily dive into the individual data uh, as much as we should. But also the fact that that nowadays with the increasing availability of testing um, methodologies and equipment available, even in the practice, even in the field, where we can really start to understand individual needs um, it's super exciting uh, and is something that's still quite new in, in the field of 
sports nutrition, particularly applied sports nutrition. So maybe you could just give us um, a little overview. I mean, I have discussed various angles of this with other researchers. You know, um, I've got into uh, substrate metabolism of all sorts of people. Um, but what we've not done has gone into this from the perspective of how we can individualize this uh, so much and then, and then um, you know, use that to influence our, our nutritional prescription. So from your perspective, since you've done this both as a researcher and you've, you know, this is an area, is this, this is your area for your PhD, is it specifically? Uh, yeah, so I'm looking at um, acute and then chronic metabolic responses to exercise performed in the heat. So acute responses to um, endurance exercise performed under heat stress and then also metabolic adaptation to training performed under heat stress. So that would be um, my PhD. Yes. I mean, it is amazing how things influence the way that the body actually uses fuel. And I think that's probably a good area that we could get into this. You know, why, why should we be interested in this as scientists and as practitioners i mean is it you know don't we just go to the you know the 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 petrol station the gas pump and just stick some fuel in and then just go off and worry more about our training and uh you know our exercise and psychology and so on why you know why should we be taking an interest in this yeah this that that's that's a very good question so i think the the strongest application of um assessing these metabolic qualities and traits in different individuals relates to sport of an ultra distance um, events. So things like Ironman triathlon, which is one of the papers that you mentioned that I, mm. that I wrote was concerned with that. And then of course there's a myriad of other um, ultra distance events. Now they're very, very popular here in, in New Zealand as, as I know they are in the UK as well. Um, and that's the very simplistic um, reason for why that would be important would be obviously the differences in tank size as i like to mm. say um, to people when trying to explain this so our our overall tank of carbohydrates in the body is 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 limited as as is in the introduction of almost any paper concerned with substrate metabolism so um events of very long duration and higher intensities so in in ultra endurance sport um, we can deplete the concentrations and the um, amount of carbohydrate substrate we have available to us to very, very low concentrations. And that itself might be a cause of fatigue in the second half of the marathon in an Ironman triathlon or um, towards the end of a road cycling uh, day stage race, for instance. Um, whereas our fat stores, even in a very lean individual, are effectively unlimited in the context of endurance competition. So in someone with say 70 kilo body mass and um, 10% body fat, they've got seven kilos of body fat in their body, which is enough energy to fuel countless back-to-back -back, uh, marathons. So you're not gonna run out of fat during exercise of any duration effectively. So, if we can manipulate the rate at which we're depleting our carbohydrate stores during ultra endurance sport, that might um, alter the duration at which we can sustain a given exercise intensity below our um, thresholds. That was one of the other components of, of endurance performance physiology we often talk about. That's great. And I, I'm looking forward to digging into various aspects here because I, you know, for me, um, one obvious area of confusion, though, that I see out there is 
and, and this is because we, we operate on a, a sort of a reductionist basis um, when it comes to science for obvious reasons, but also that reductionism also sort of, you know, infects, if you like, the language and terminology that is used. And we have an oversimplification of words like endurance, for example. So we say, oh, endurance exercise, um, someone will start reading work on, on this, for example, and they might interpret that any kind of endurance exercise would benefit from improving things like, um, or, or preferentially improving fat oxidation over carbohydrate usage. Maybe you could sort of delve a bit into there in terms of there is variety that exists between, you know, sort of, well, the intra and inter variability that exists, but also the fact that, yes, it can be manipulated, but that isn't, I mean, there are, there are reasons to do that. And then there's reasons not to do that. What, you know, maybe you could explore that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So the sort of athletes that need to be worried about um, depletion of their carbohydrate stores affecting their performance in an endurance competition, these athletes are going to be have to be competing over multiple hours at least. So we're not talking about um, 10K track, track and field runners. Um, at the elite level, we're perhaps not even talking about marathon runners. We're talking about road cyclists and we're talking about um, Ironman triathletes and possibly half Ironman triathletes as well. So we're talking about really, really long duration exercise. And that those are the sorts of sports at which our endogenous or our internal carbohydrate stores might be depleted to very, very low concentration. So that's where we might be concerned with those. Um, I think an important important factor that I like to always consider when we're talking about this is that there are, there are different ways to, to take away stress from your internal, your body's own carbohydrate stores. So one of those might be to improve your own access to your fat stores, as we've discussed, but also time and time again, research has shown that that, that can also happen with ingestion of carbohydrate um, from sports drinks and gels and things. So it's a, there's, you, can possibly take a multifactorial approach and it's not about fats versus carbs it's possibly a little bit more nuanced than that yeah no absolutely and um hopefully we'll we'll, we'll explore some of this and in, in previous well in, mo in in a lot of podcasts previously um i like to use terminology like tools in the toolbox when it comes to knowledge information and tests and so on and for us as as practitioners you know it, it it's really important that we understand um, and develop and expand where relevant, you know, the quality sort of tools that exist in our toolbox, but also we need to understand, you know, how to use them and the limits of them. And as I've referred to in also in the past is, you know, um, a trait of, of true expertise or true mastery sometimes is, is not only the identification of what tools to use, but also when not to use them. Yeah. Um, and that is something that I do, you know, I work a lot with ultra endurance, elite ultra endurance athletes. And it's very interesting how I, you know, even at that level, there's a temptation to do things um, that are seen to be effective in, in other areas of health or sport, or of course, you know, unfortunately social media or what somebody's friend or, or mate is doing. Um, and this is, you know, this is an interesting area that we're talking about because it, you know, in, in certain sports like, say, rugby or football, we use the word elite 
And that kind of suggests someone who's, you know, like a Premier League football player, Premier League rugby player or championship, you know, but elite. When it comes to something like ultra endurance athletes, um, that's, that, that, that's quite a blurred area because, of course, there's a lot of people who have day jobs, if you like, who are absolutely elite athletes, you know, including, and we'll talk in some detail in a bit about Ironman athletes, which are a fascinating group of popular, slightly crazy people that exist out there. Um, but also, it, you know, in the ultra endurance arena, people are doing things like Marathon de Sable, you know, five days out in the desert or, you know, sort of hundred kilometers in the mountains, you know, um, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that's going on out there. Um, and again, we still need to differentiate even between them about between people who are just trying to survive the event or those, uh, which in itself is a hell of a feat, or those that are not just trying to participate in the event, but they're also trying to win it. Um, all of which, you know, means that they're going to have different levels of fuel utilization and so on. And we're not just talking, of course, about the competition, but also how people prepare for these events, which is enormous amounts of training of course um and many of particularly the very serious people in your triathletes and so on you know they they're competing in multiple events throughout the year so there's quite a lot there um which they have to mix into their day-to-day -day lifestyle their training and their competition plan um and this is why i you know i feel this is worth getting into um in a bit more detail um maybe you could just give us sort of a bit more information about the relationship between things like exercise intensity and the body's usage of, of fat as a fuel. Um, you know, what's, what, what do we need to know about this? Yeah, so this is that's um, uh, the relationship between exercise intensity and, and substrate utilization has been quite well studied. Um, so what we tend to see we, in terms of, of fat oxidation is that at very low intensities, um, fat oxidation will rise with exercise intensity. So as you move from very low exercise intensities below your aerobic threshold, um, you might see an increase in fat oxidation as you increase your running speed or your um, power output on the bike, for instance. And then once we get to a sort of moderate intensity, which I, I found tends to be around the aerobic threshold in, in some athletes, it'll be quite a bit more than that. In other athletes, it might be even lower than the aerobic threshold. Um, you'll reach the maximum rate at which you're going to see fat oxidation in you and as an individual during exercise. And then once we increase beyond that, move up towards high exercise intensities, we're going to see that fat oxidation rate decrease. So it's sort of an in, um, inverted U relationship between exercise intensity and fat oxidation that we see. Um, the other side of the coin is carbohydrate metabolism, and that's effectively a linear increase with exercise intensity. So the harder you're working, the faster the rate at which carbohydrates are being metabolized and used in the body um, for energy. Obviously, at those very high exercise intensities where we've seen a reduction in fat oxidation, um, those, those events are really tied to carbohydrate metabolism. Whereas in the more moderate intensity domain, we're going to see um, more of a mixture of fat and carbohydrates being used as our energy substrates. So I think for a lot of, for a lot of us that are familiar with you know, having at some point in education, and it could be anything from personal trainers to, you know, and S&C coaches all the way through to physiologists and so on. At some point in their sort of pathway of education, there would have been at least a cursory look at 
fuel utilization where they see that Brooks and Mercer chart and you can see the crossover yeah. point. And that is something that, I mean, for a lot of people, it's just left there. That's what it is. That's how we use fuel. You know, as you said, low intensity, it's fat, high intensity is carbohydrate. A lot of people confuse that with um, the scenario being it's only fat at low intensity and only carbohydrate at high intensity. And of course, that's not, that's not the case. But also that information will come from very short testing protocols um, and they're done say on students and not necessarily elite athletes and again we have to differentiate not just students from athletes you know men from women and so on but also you know a sprinter from an endurance you know endurance to ultra endurance and so on um but of course also the the length of the protocol itself is of interest as is are all the things that could influence um, you know, ha, you know what happens during the protocol. Maybe you could unravel that a bit further from what I've said, so that we can understand it isn't just that straight up Brooks and Mercer, you know, chart that we see in our textbooks. Yeah, absolutely. So that relationship that I've just described and the Brooks and Mercer chart that you're um, describing is in two dimensions. So it's just acutely exercise intensity and then the rate of utilization of those two substrates. Now, when we go, when we take um, time, so we extend duration of exercise at any given intensity, we'll see changes in our fat and carbohydrate utilization from the first few minutes of exercise to the 50th minute and the 100th minute. So as exercise is prolonged, we generally see a shift where, where fat metabolism will increase and carbohydrate metabolism will, generally speaking, decrease a little bit. So if we're exercising at the same intensity for an hour, um, the, in, a, in a lab test uh, of a very short duration, elicited given amounts of fat and carbohydrate utilization, we would see after an hour of exercise of that intensity that the fat oxidation rate would be higher and the carbohydrate oxidation rate would generally be a little lower. And, you know, when, whether it's someone just in the gym uh, using heart rate or some predetermined um, setting on a treadmill or something that says fat burning zone um, mm. or indeed they're doing a some sort of fitness test vo2 max test and and um, apparently um you know they're, they're they're finding their fat burning zones that way i mean what are the you know what what would what would your view of that be in terms of is that actually their fat burning zones is that totally incorrect or inappropriate phraseology anyway i mean what are your thoughts on that Yes, this is interesting. This is something that I come up against a lot in the uh, clinic over here in Auckland. So a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, I want to have an assessment done because I will want to know how fast I need to run on the treadmill to lose body fat. And you can, from, from the terminology that's used in the wider uh, exercise industry, you can see why people would have that question. Obviously, it's a great desire of a lot of people to do. And yeah, treadmills do say fat burning zone on them <laughs> now i always say we can't tell you that so we can from our testing we can work out what different rates of fat and carbohydrate metabolism might be during exercise but if we're talking about losing body mass we look we want to understand substrate use and substrate intake over the course of days and weeks so 
the substrates that you utilize during exercise are then going to impact on the substrates that you're using for energy when you finish exercising. So if you do your, your exercise strictly in your true fat burning zone that you may have had measured in a lab, so the exercise intensity at which you're going to use fat at the fastest possible rate, um, you might use less carbohydrate energy during exercise than you would have done if you'd have exercised a little bit harder. Now then when you come into the post-exercise period, um, your carbohydrate stores aren't going to be um, depleted very much. So there's not much incentive to shift to an increased rate of fat oxidation at rest. Uh, whereas if you've done harder exercise than your true um, maximum fat burning exercise intensity, so you've gone a little bit harder than that, you're using less fat and more carbohydrate during exercise you might rattle through a little bit more of those carbohydrate stores during the exercise, leave yourself a little bit depleted, and then you're going to be preferentially using fat as a fuel in the post-exercise period. So we can't really get around energy balance for um, weight and body fat loss. So that's the best exercise intensity um, to, to work at during an exercise session in the gym. Um, in order to lose body weight is not going to be about the substrates that you're using during exercise. It's going to be about creating an energy deficit and how that incorporates with your diet and lifestyle choices in the post-exercise period as well. Yeah, that I mean, see, this is a classic case of where we've reduced terms to, you know, to their simplest form, fat, fat burning. And of course, yeah. you know, what is that? you know, what does that really mean? And, and as you're explaining there, of course, there's a difference between fat burning or fat oxidation and fat balance, of course, in the same way that, you know, energy, energy balances, you know, is the sort of the, 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 the master concern as it relates to whether or not we're going to induce an energy deficit to result in uh, body mass loss. Um, and of course that gets complicated because the, you know, the, the, the nuances that exist in that is it will also depend on, um, you know, whether that person's in the right kind of energy deficit, too high, too low, you know, uh, whether it's chronic enough, as you've just inferred, you know, not just hours or minutes within the exercise session, for example, but, you know, days or weeks or, or months to be in that situation. And then, you know, um, I, you know, if we bring this back to the relevance of what we're talking about, of course, where, you know, um, fat burning for the purposes of, of fueling activity or fat burning for the purposes of reducing fat levels in, in the body um, should also, we should also be including the fact that, that fat stores in the body uh, or carbohydrate stores in the body isn't just a single tank that we tap into, there are different places that these things exist. Maybe you could just help us understand a little bit more about that because it is obviously relevant to what are we actually trying to do when we talk about fat burning in the first place? Yeah, of course. So when most, most people talking about wanting to burn fat are talking about taking away their peripherally stored um, adipose tissue, the sort of flabby bit around, around the edge of us. Mm -hmm. um, Fat is stored, yes, in adipose tissue cells around, around the edge of us and around our organs, and that's all the fat that, that we would like to get rid of. But we also store fat inside our muscle cells. So just like we store, we store carbohydrates in muscle and in the liver, we store fats in our muscle cells and then outside of them as well. So 
the the origin of the fats, if you like, that we're utilizing during exercise um, will vary with exercise duration. So we tend to see that that um, those in, in intramuscular um, fat stores are those that we see burned earlier during exercise because they're readily available, uh, whereas the the fats stored in at the periphery take a little bit longer to get to the muscle cells where they're needed um, for fuel metabolism. So they'll tend to take over fat oxidation later on during exercise. Yeah. I, I, you know, and again, it, it's one of those things where we, I mean, whilst there's a difference between fat burning or fat oxidation as it relates to fueling activity, as opposed to reducing fat stores on, on the body, I mean, this gets even more complicated, of course, because, of course, reducing unwanted body fat, unnecessary body fat will impact performance, particularly um, like in things like endurance athletes, just mm. simply carrying dead weight is a very expensive um, way to limit your, you know, your, your performance and increase your energy um, expenditure. But again, and I referred to Dylan Thompson and uh, Dr. Javi Gonzalez and um, Prof. James Betts and so on. And when I've talked to them about this in the past, um, you know, they, they do raise an interesting point, of course. And, and again, we, you know, if we're only looking at fat oxidation or fat burning or whatever acutely, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't represent what's happening during the course of 24 hours. And there's those, those sort of compensatory mechanisms, which for those that are trying to lose weight very simplistically, yes, they may be burning you know, higher levels of fat when they're in their fat burning zone during their, you know, brief treadmill session. But of course, the body's just going to replace all of that fat later in the day when they eat, because they still haven't got their energy balance situation right. Could, maybe um, you could explore that in terms of the bigger picture. And by that, I mean, like a, a day as opposed to within the confines of a test. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's an important concept for particularly for weight loss. So our fat is a very efficient, um, fuel in terms of its storage. It's light by comparison to carbohydrates. So the body, any excess energy in the long term is going to store it in our fat stores. So if we do a bout of exercise where we're primarily using, um, fat for instance so we're doing a moderate intensity exercise and we're, we're exercising at a very high rate of fat oxidation we're not using carbohydrates at any at any great rate we'll reach the end of exercise and we'll have relatively topped up carbohydrate stores um, so when we take on um, energy in the post-exercise period we're not going to shuttle much of that to topping back up our carbohydrate stores because they're still relatively full obviously there'll be a small degree of that but it's not going to play a huge a huge role in that um postprandial um, energy storage so what we'll see with that with those um, energy substrates is that they that many of them will be will be stored in our body fat cells uh, whereas if we performed a bout of exercise at a much higher intensity so we're inducing a much bigger energy deficit because regardless of what substrate we're using, we're um, expending a lot more energy at those higher intensities to run faster or pedal harder on the bike. Um, we'll see a much larger reduction in our uh, 
muscle and liver carbohydrate stores because they're the, that's where the energy is going to be coming from during exercise. We take on that meal post post exercise. It was this, let's say it's the same meal as um, in the previous example. Now, because we've got a lowered muscle and liver glycogen, we're going to take as much of the energy from that meal as we can to topping those stores back up. Our body really wants to maintain our carbohydrate energy stores because they're such an important rapid um, energy store. So from an evolutionary perspective, we wouldn't want to be caught without low. Um, we wouldn't want to be caught without well topped up carbohydrate stores if we were going to need to move very quickly. Yeah. So that means that less of that energy from that post-exercise meal is going to be stored in our body fat tissue. So in terms of how the body accesses these fuel supplies, um, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm leading somewhere with this. So, you, you, you know, is this really a case of you just flick the switch of, right, fat burn, flick the switch back to carbohydrate burn? Or is there some degree of flexibility in that process? Um, and, and, and whether or not that process is flexible, is that influenced by training, genetics, lifestyle, behavior? Uh, and and what, would, what, would, what caution should we have with that in mind as well, um, particularly when we're interested in, in performance? Yeah, so I think a critical aspect of that is that our body sort of auto-regulates our metabolism. It's obviously not a conscious process, and there are a lot of inbuilt mechanisms to make sure we're oxidizing the most appropriate fuel for the exercise challenge that we, we give our body. Now, if we were to um, exercise with low carbohydrate availability, so if we had low, for whatever reason, had low levels of muscle or liver glycogen, our body's concerned about that. So it's going to act to preserve those um, carbohydrate stores. And we're going to make more of the energy um, that we need to fuel movement from, from body fat. Whereas if we've got high carbohydrate availability, um, we're going to get more of our energy from those carbohydrate stores. Um, when we're producing or we, we're, we're requiring um, energy more quickly so that is going to be during higher intensity in movements and um, we're more concerned with getting energy from our more immediate fuel sources so carbohydrate metabolism is faster than fat metabolism, fat metabolism and uses less oxygen um, and also we do have that big pool of muscle glycogen available right where it's needed within the muscle so yeah, we do have a lot of inbuilt mechanisms um, to make sure we're oxidizing the most appropriate fuel for us in a given situation. Um, training status is very, is very critical, as, as you mentioned. So um, through performing repeated endurance training, we're gonna, we do see an increase in our capacity to utilize um, fats as energy sources. So we, we will see an increase in the machinery required for fat metabolism during during exercise and i also think it's important to note that what we see is that a given bout of exercise so running at a given absolute speed or cycling at a given power output is a lower relative exercise intensity in a more trained individual compared to a less trained individual so yes we see higher rates of fat oxidation but proportionally it might, that, that difference might be less dramatic just because the relative exercise intensity has changed Sure. And I find this topic particularly interesting just by virtue of the fact that, that 
there is a degree of flexibility, um, you know, one way or the other between the way the body, you know, uses these fuel supplies as it relates to a number of different areas, one of which would be health, of course. Um, and we won't be delving into that, but there is, there is obviously research out there that suggests that, that having more flexibility in this area is, you know, is a positive thing. But when we're talking about whether it's losing body fat for, for weight loss, whether it's for health and or aesthetics or performance purposes, or preferentially selecting the right fuel at the right times, um, which absolutely could be of interest, particularly when we use that metaphor of fuel in the engine. And the, uh, you know, the great thing about the human body is, is the ability to, is to, you know, it can actually change the fuel mixture to a certain extent, which can influence performance, which for those people that are looking to go beyond just um, surviving an endurance event to actually winning it, there are going to be scenarios where they need to be able to switch fuel supplies you know, metabolic flexibility is an interesting term. Um, and I've heard Louise Burke, for example, refer to, to this in a num and John Hawley in, in a number of different references, but where, um, and, and I think it was Trent Stellingworth that said this, but, but also we do also need to be mindful that, that we can train how the body uses fuel supplies, but we need to be mindful that it is not, you know, for example, if we're trying to increase fat, oxidation or fat usage we don't want that to be at the expense of its ability to utilize carbohydrate um maybe, yeah maybe you could because you've written about this in a fair amount of detail maybe you could explain you know what i'm talking about and also why that's important as it relates to performance yeah so if you're if you're talking about a an athlete who has an event that has varying exercise intensity throughout the event. So if we're talking about a road cyclist, for instance, um, that's not a time trial event. That's not a one speed event. So the, the appropriate fuel source for them will change in accordance with the demands acutely within the event. So if you're in the middle of the peloton humming along quite easily, then that might be a time where, where the body can, can make use of fat as an energy source. And it might be really useful if that cyclist has the capacity to use fat at quite a substantial rate um, or at least preserve their body's um, stored carbohydrates because then when they get to the bottom of the hill and they're looking to break, break off the front and they're, they're cycling at double, three times the wattage that they were in the peloton, mm -hmm. they're going to need access to those carbohydrate stores to fuel that much higher exercise intensity. So you can see that both sides of the coin metabolically are required in an athlete in an event like like a road cycling um, distance. Whereas an Ironman triathlete, it's a non-drafting event. Generally speaking, the courses are relatively flat by comparison. So um, the power output on the bike and the run speed in the marathon and of course the swim as well um, are relatively one pace. Obviously there is a little bit of movement with, with, with things like hills. Um, so the, the, the metabolic demands in an athlete in, in that sport might be a little more simplistic than in a, in a, in a road cyclist or a stochastic exercise, um, event. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is such an interesting topic. Uh, I had a great 
discussion, um, which is a, a podcast a few episodes back with Mark Harries, um, who's doing his PhD on, you know, in this sort of area as it relates to um, sort of fuel for the work required, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and that was the topic of our, of our discussion where we did get into, into some of this. Um, and we're, we're, we're going to move forwards a bit um, because we could hang around this topic forever. Um, but I think, you know, I think however which way we look at it, it you know, it, we just need to understand, obviously, that there are different ways in which the body will store access and utilize fuel. And we just need to obviously be mindful um, that, that if we're going to try and manipulate these things, you know, it, it is what we're doing fit for purpose. And that's something I think that's super interesting that I want to talk to you about, um, particularly as it relates to things like, like Ironman triathletes. Um, but let's just quickly go back to something we haven't yet discussed, and that is the fact that you can assess this in individuals. Um, yeah. And, and um, those that are familiar with fitness testing protocols, either just through reading about it in papers and so on, they'll see terms like, MFO, maximal fat oxidation, or specifically people who are, who are directly trying to assess this through something like the fat max test. Um, yeah. And I know this is something that you do a lot of in, in your work um, uh, and something actually I, I play around with, so to speak, with my, my athletes, which I think is really interesting. You know, what are the tests for determining fat usage, fat oxidation, and, um, and you know, how how should we consider using that to influence our strategies um, as scientists and performance nutritionists and so on? Yeah, so we can measure fat and carbohydrate oxidation by collecting the expired gases of, of an athlete whilst they're exercising. So this is the same equipment they use to measure someone's VO2 max. Um, you can measure the fat and carbohydrate oxidation of an individual during any moderate to low intensity um, exercise test. So that could be a longer duration assessment or a shorter duration assessment. Obviously, generally speaking, when we're working with athletes, we have short periods of time. So one appointment and we want to get the most information out of that appointment as we can. So this FATMAX test was developed and this was uh, um, originally uh, done at the University of Birmingham, which is where I did my master's degree. Um, so this, this test is a step test. So very similar to how we might measure an individual's lactate thresholds or ventilatory thresholds or something like that. So we start at a very low exercise intensity and we might, um, keep them there for three or four minutes and we're collecting all of their expired gases through, throughout that time. And then we just in a step like fashion, increase that exercise intensity by a set, um, Unit so a set number of watts or a set number of um, kilometers per hour, um, and we repeat that uh, quite a few times until we reach higher exercise intensities. So what we go and do there is we take the data that we get from our metabolic cart from the expired gases, and using um, stoichiometric equations, we can estimate rates of fat and carbohydrate metabolism for each exercise intensity. So for each step each stage of work we can have a rate of fat oxidation a rate of carbohydrate oxidation now we would then go and model those curves and you can um 
estimate someone's maximal rate of fat oxidation, how it's, how it's um, written about in the literature, which will effectively be the highest rate observed across a wide range of exercise intensities. Do we, and because and, I want to get stay on this for a bit, do, do we have to um, customize this to an individual circumstances um, where they're at, you know, relative to their goals, their, you know, competition, whether they're, you know, um, just running a marathon or whether they're looking at ultra endurance events and whether they're, you know, literally elite or um, just ambitious. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? You know? Yeah, of course. So when you're, when you're working as a practitioner, you have to tailor the exercise protocol to the athlete that you're working with. So if you're working with a very, very elite athlete, what you don't want to do is start the test at an exercise intensity that's too low, that has no meaning to them. And the step duration, if it's too small, then they're going to do so many um, steps of exercise, then you're running into this exercise duration issue. So comparing the 17th stage against the second stage isn't a fair comparison because at that point they've already been exercising for you know nearly an hour so what we want to do is have a relatively small number of stages overall maybe between five and seven or eight um, and then have a starting exercise intensity that's low enough for the athlete that we capture all of the data that we're interested in it's obviously got to be lower than the theoretical maximal rate of fat oxidation um otherwise we'll 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 miss it so yeah the starting power or speed and then the size of the increase between stages will have to be tailored to the individual athlete and their training status absolutely so to get to give us an idea of what that might look like is this something that can be achieved in sort of a 20 30 minute test um or you know, bearing in mind some of them might be in, you know, just in one stage would be running for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, what, you know, what, what might that look like in a number of different situations? Yeah. So with, with very well-trained athletes um, in cycling, I would tend to have three minute stages. So if we did, um, we, we just looked to design a protocol that we knew would have, yeah, between five and eight stages all, three minutes in duration, we could have, you know, a, a test lasting around 20 minutes. Um, in lesser trained athletes, they, they're going to take a little bit longer to get to their steady state, so to speak, for each exercise intensity. So it's going to take their heart rate and VO2 kinetics a little bit longer mm. to get to the steady state reflective of that exercise intensity. So we tend to move it up to four um, or even five minutes. And, there, and it's possible that even that isn't, isn't long enough in in sedentary individuals um so yeah it's important that you don't want too many stages um and you but you don't want to miss the information at the lower end of the exercise intensity spectrum that you're interested in when you do the assessment and you i mean the modality of exercise is interesting of course because like with triathletes which we'll yeah. get to in a bit more detail in a minute you know where there is a difference between running and cycling and swimming and obviously the swimming bit's not particularly easy to test this sort of thing um but running and cycling uh, a lot of clinics or labs that have this sort of kit um in one form or another um you know might be tempted to to go for one test or another is that relevant or should they even do both 
Um, so it depends on why exactly you're doing the test, I think would be my best um, answer. So if you're, if the test is for things like um, threshold determination, so if you're doing a traditional lactate ventilatory threshold assessment looking to get power and um, heart rate for different exercise intensity zones, then it's mm -hmm. probably a good idea if the athlete has the resources and the time to do those in both um, cycling and running in a triathlete. Um, On to maximal fat oxidation. I te I, when I'm using it as a practitioner, so the athletes that I work with, I'm not too worried about the specifics of the number. So there have been some studies comparing running and cycling, and you'll see that maximum fat oxidation is a little bit higher most of the time in running compared to cycling in the same athlete. But to me, that doesn't really matter very much, particularly when the athlete is paying a couple of hundred dollars to do the test and taking time out of training. Um, what does that really mean? So when I'm doing that assessment and I'm looking at those maximal fat oxidation figures, what I'm really trying to work out is in that athlete, is there sort of expected rates of fat oxidation during training and competition going to be low, moderate or high? Because the specific value that we'll measure will change quite a bit with, we don't like to talk about it, but error of measurement um, and also things related to their diet around the trial yeah. and um, all those pre-trial controls. So the specific number I'm not too worried about. For me, it's just uh, something that can be useful when trying to characterize an athlete's metabolism. So do they use fats yeah, at a low, moderate or high rate? Um, relative to other athletes and also relative to themselves over time. So if you've done a block of training where this has been one of your goals, have you seen a difference? Yeah. So I, those I athletes really just doing one assessment for me is, is more than adequate. Yeah, no, that's great. Cause I think it is important. We differentiate this type of testing for research rather than to inform practice. And I use the word inform specifically because that's what we're trying to do. It's, are looking through the window, isn't it? I, lo I love the way you, you use the, the, the phraseology of characterizing. You're, you're just trying to get an understanding, get a, get, a, get, get a handle on where they're at. And of course, and I'm assuming you, you would be on the same page as, as me on this, this isn't something that you would necessarily look to do only once. You might do it as a baseline and then you could um, you know, follow and track your athlete in the same way you would with things like body composition, um, you know, performance and training metrics, you know, um, uh, using various gadgetry that, you know, these kinds of athletes will do for, you know, heart rate and power and, and so on from within the practice. Is, is that how you see things? And is there any caveats to that that you think you might add? Yeah, I think, I think so. You're right. So, serial testing of the same athlete over time not overdoing it not doing it too much um but periodically um over the course of several training cycles um repeating testing i think can be important because it can get you a look at how effective the training has been and sort of what's changed in that athlete over time so it's particularly useful because it's not necessarily a test into and of itself so i'll typically this is data that I collect as part of an assessment we do with an athlete where we're also measuring their power and heart rate at aerobic and anaerobic threshold, which in the context of ultra endurance athletes is really key for, yeah. for characterizing training zones and, and prescribing training.
Yeah, well, I, that's a great point you make. You know, it is very easy for for one to be obsessed with that one metric. You know, mm. uh, doing everything you can to increase fat oxidation, um, but you know, what what is that at the expense of? Um, yeah. Is it at the expense of their performance? Is it at the expense of um, you know? Is it limiting other factors? You know, what what what's it going to do? And and I think you make a great point there. It's 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 like I say, it's it's one of those tools in the toolbox. Um, yeah. Okay, so in terms of maximal fat oxidation, then, and I know you're doing your PhD in heat stress and uh, and so on. Is there? I mean, before we move on, then to get a bit more into the triathlon thing. Um, is there anything extra there that you think that we need to be mindful or is it, it's not as important, um, to the bigger picture for, for most people to be concerned with maximal fat oxidation. Yeah. 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 I I would say, I think that in most individuals, it's not, um, the most important metric particular, a lot of, a lot of people I, uh, who, who approach me to have assessments done in the end, I, I tend to be trying to emphasize that this is not a marker that you need to be worrying too much about for your event, doing training and getting fitter for a start will move this metric. So if you're not terribly fit and well-trained at the moment, you do a solid period of structured endurance training and you'll find that that metric will, will look after itself to some extent. And of course, a lot of people are training for events where it simply might not make much of a difference whether that maximal fat oxidation has actually changed or not. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, you know, again, in, in the literature, you'll, you'll see people talking about things like, you know, train high, train low. And we need to be mindful that there's, there's lots of different reasons why we would want to manipulate diet and training or both together and so on, which, you know might might not be about substrate utilization directly it might might be about influencing adaptations to training you know for example training mm-hmm. low may have a beneficial impact on things like mitochondrial biogenesis and you know there there's stuff there that's super interesting that i've gotten into with other researchers and and uh, practitioners on this podcast but if we try and contextualize this into one group of athletes which you've done um another paper on uh, which would be ironman triathletes which i think are a particularly interesting group um uh, of people who engage in um you know and i'll have you describe what this is for those that aren't as familiar but you know triath- there's various kinds of triathlons of course um but ironman's a very interesting one where Substrate utilization is particularly interesting as it is with all ultra endurance events where this concept of, you know, optimizing um, maximal rates of fat oxidation and preserving, you know, precious stores of carbohydrates and so on could be of interest. So moving on to, to, to triathletes, you, you, there's another paper that you've done that I thought was really interesting and there's another paper I'll, I'll put in the show notes and so on but i think all practitioners will find this of interest uh not just those that work with triathletes and so on but um the title in itself i think is particularly interesting where you 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 know you refer to substrate metabolism during ironman triathlon but you you, you finish that off with different horses on the same courses <laughs> i love that because yeah, in my yeah. head it's such a great explanation it visualizes exactly the problem that we have that we've already been 
discussing. How, how did that paper come about? And, um, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig into this a bit. Yeah, so for a start, I was myself really happy with the title. I was really happy when, uh, when that, that came down on the paper. I didn't, um, that's an expression that we, horses for courses is an expression we use in the UK quite a lot and how mm. to explain that to some of my <laughs> colleagues in New Zealand. People are like, what are you talking about? You're talking about triathlon. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, so the, the, the paper came from conversations I was having with my supervisor, Dan Plews, who is an Ironman triathlete himself. Yeah, um, pretty good one, at, I understand. He is that. very, very good, yeah, as, as he'll, he'll no doubt um, tell you. Um, he's got the, yeah, the course record for an age group or an amateur at um, Kona, which is where the World Ironman um, Championships takes place. And he coaches a lot of elite level professional Ironman triathletes. So very involved in that space. And of course, there's, you referred to at the start of, the, of our conversation about this very dichotomous debate that we'll see on social media and even in the literature as well with people being on the low-carb, high-fat side of, of nutrition and then people on the carbohydrates is king side of nutrition. And there's always this discussion with events like Ironman where people will say, oh no, you can't do an Ironman fast on a low carb diet. And there'll be other people who say, well, I'm on a low carb diet and I completed the whole event without even having any carbohydrates during the event. And you, you know, so you end up pe people butting heads. And I think that arises because everybody eats. So everyone has an opinion about, about nutrition. So we, we thought that we could just run some like back of the envelope type calculations on what the metabolism of an Ironman will look like at different performance standards. Cause our suspicion had been that it's very different. The sort of metabolic context of an Ironman when you're looking to win it. So when you're looking to finish in eight, eight hours for the elite men and eight and a half to nine hours for the elite women uh, compared to someone who's just looking to get over the finish line without stopping. So someone who might be finishing in 13 hours. So the, the context of those two athletes is very, very different. So I thought, well, we can estimate how much energy is expended for an Ironman triathlete at different performance levels based on the time of the swim, the power someone puts out over a different duration on the bike, and then the time that they're going to be running. Um, you can use typical and sort of population specific um, economy measures. So the energetic cost of running at a given speed and the energetic cost of cycling at a given wattage. Um, and if you apply those, put, the, put that all together, you can come up with a calorie cost of the um, different Ironman disciplines in the different um, performance levels. So, Obviously, the main difference between athletes of a different performance level and in endurance sport, I think this is true regardless of what event you're talking about from the perspective of a physiologist at least, is that the rate of energy expenditure is much higher in an elite level athlete compared to a lesser trained athlete. That's really what defines them physiologically as a superior athlete is that they can mm. expend more energy sustainably. So we have then a, a caloric cost of performing the Ironman at the different performance standards. And then we thought, well, if you take a range of, 
fat oxidation for each athlete in each of the different disciplines. Um, a wide range that we, we come across in the lab all the time. So a lower rate of fat oxidation and a higher rate of fat oxidation. You can then have a lower and, a, and an upper estimate for what the carbohydrate cost of performing an Ironman triathlon is going to be at the different performance levels. So what we, of course, found with those calculations was that the carbohydrate cost um, of performing an Ironman was going to is likely, and we modelled and estimated, of course, is not measured directly, um, that to be higher at the higher performance standards. So we then considered the in energy that you could could consume and and metabolise from from sports drinkers and nutrition during the events themselves, and we thought our calculations showed that even with very, very high rates of fat oxidation, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to finish an Ironman without some sort of nutrition during a race um, at all. Whereas at the very low performance standards in a 13-hour um, Ironman triathlon, that might be more plausible. So kind of effectively ended up with a conclusion that sort of um, encapsulated a lot of the conversation and that was the, the lower levels uh, of performance. If you were to decide that you wanted to adapt to a low carbohydrate diet, for whatever reason that might be, and have a very, very high rates of fat oxidation, you can get almost all of the energy that you require to complete an Ironman from fat metabolism. So at least the theoretical requirement for calories coming in during that very, very long race is quite low. Whereas at the higher performance standards, even if you have very high rates of fat oxidation, um, you're still going to need some carbohydrate on top of that, even just from a theoretical standpoint. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, you, you, this whole thing fits very neatly into my obsession with the need to contextualize. And, you know, what are we even talking about? And just because you can do something, it doesn't mean that you should do something. And there's a lot of a lot of critical thinking that needs to be done by both the researchers, practitioners, and the consumers of this information. In this case, the, you know, the Ironman athletes. And of course it's, it's quite funny when we, we talk about an elite Ironman athlete, where most of us look at any kind of Ironman athlete is, is in themselves elite. Um, mm. You know, no, not anyone can do um, an Ironman. That's pr pretty, pretty serious in itself. But, the contextualization process is is fascinating that you know to contextualize the training to contextualize the competition even where the competition is taking place um will have some influence on this and of course you know we've talked about actually contextualizing the the the, the fat oxidation itself through you know fat max testing and and so on presents researchers and practitioners with with some really exciting areas I think that we can all get into. And, you know, I think it's fair that we've only really sort of delved into the, into the topic here and reading your, your, your papers are going to be a must uh, to expand significantly on that area. But, you know, we're sort of, we've been talking for an hour already. It's always amazing um, how we can talk this long on these things, but because my interest and the large majority of my listeners' interests are going to be more on the nutrition side of, of things, particularly 
um, from from applying the science into practice. Maybe we could just quickly talk a bit about, you know, this idea that we can try to understand um, rates of fat oxidation in an individual and we can manipulate that. And as you say, um, you know, there are different, different kinds of, of scenarios where we might or might not want to do that in terms of actual strategies. And for example, the ones that you've implemented with people that you've worked with and, and with, with Dr. Dan Plews and, and so on, I know um, that there are some interesting areas there as it, as it relates to, um, you know, what I think loosely we might describe as, as sort of periodization of, of nutrition, carbohydrates and so on. And also, you know, the, 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 you referred to this where actually there is a need um, to actually consume carbohydrates during the event or during test test runs of an event that sort of thing maybe um you know you can go where you want with this but you know maybe we should, we could talk about that for a little bit yeah so i think the, the sort of conclusions that i've come to through uh, research and practice and then also what we came to in that paper was that at all with an event like an iron man preserving your body's own stores of carbohydrate is going to be important um, regardless of what uh, performance level you're competing at. And we have um, different strategies to, to do that. So going back, it's manipulating the body's own fuel stores that we're using. So whether that's coming from our own carbohydrates or fat stores, so we can use nutrition and, and training to alter that. And also by putting um, exogenous or uh, ingested fuel sources into the body. So my broad sort of current thinking is that I, I would recommend to anyone competing in an Ironman that they might want to be consuming carbohydrates during their event, whether they're at the very elite level or whether they're at the very um, end, of the, end of the event. Because, I mean, there's countless studies in endurance sports showing that carbohydrate ingestion during, during exercise has, has performance-enhancing effects, and that's going to be for a variety of reasons. But in, in this event, that, that may come back to providing an extra, extra fuel source that's going to spare your body's own carbohydrate stores. Now, that doesn't mean that you, um, that you don't have to worry about fat metabolism necessarily. So whether you're at the elite level or at the lower end of the spectrum you might think that if you have better access to your body's fat stores and that's also going to take pressure off your body's endogenous carbohydrate stores so almost the same there's the same strategy there now the difference you might see is that in, obviously in some individuals it's very difficult to take on significant carbohydrate loads during during an ironman triathlon so whether that's lasting eight hours or 13 hours putting you know, 60, 90 grams of carbohydrates into the body every hour. Um, for some individuals, it's just not tolerable. And the gastrointestinal effects of that are, go are going to be the main limit to their performance. So in those, in those athletes, you may want to move away from that type of approach. And you might want to look at sort of chronic nutrition strategies that you can use to impact their fat metabolism specifically. And that's going to be much easier to do at athletes at the at the lower end of the performance spectrum. Now, uh, going more towards this periodizing carbohydrate intake, that's a very interesting um, avenue of research that's very much, I think, still ongoing. I don't think we have a clear 
um, recommendation and strong evidence base um, for that concept yet. But it looks like it may be possible to alter the fuel mixtures that we're going to be using during an exercise competition through periods of training where we deliberately train with lowered carbohydrate availability. That might, as you mentioned, upregulate adaptations related to um, the mitochondrial proteins within our uh, muscle cells, and it might impact our uh, sort of fat utilization machinery as well. But I, I would be cautious that that, that, that um, strategy, whilst widely used and widely used in the elite community as well, uh, the research on that is still emerging. So I'd be cautious to know that we can't really provide really very strong uh, recommendations on that just yet, particularly in um, uh, you know a sport like Ironman. Mm. Just a tool in the toolbox. We just need to yeah, understand exactly. the strengths and limitations as I, as I keep banging on. Um, listen, I, I, we could go on. I, there's so much stuff that is popping into my head, but I think we're going to have to draw a, a, a line in, in the sand. Um, you know, I, I think maybe, um, I mean, there's lots of topics we've gotten into, and I've done podcasts with people like Ricardo Costa and Nick Tiller and so on on endurance nutrition athlete um ultra endurance and training and nutrition and training the gut and um with asker you can droop and i mean i there's just so many people i've had these chats with yeah. and they all interlink and in fact um i'll link those relevant episodes to to, to this episode with you because they're all you know they're all they all integrate rather well um i mean are, are there any sort of summary points if if you like that you wanted to sort of conclude with um as it relates to this idea of fat oxidation and testing it and, 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 and using that information to inform strategies and, and practice. Yeah. So I think main from the, in terms of the measurement of fat oxidation by practitioners working with athletes, and my conclusion at the moment is that we shouldn't worry too much about the specific numbers and we shouldn't read too much into those numbers. We shouldn't be trying to predict rates of fat and carbohydrate metabolism in different training sessions and in different um, competitions based on numbers that we're going to, that we'll, that we'll measure in, in the lab. I think it's a very useful tool for characterizing an athlete and thinking about the different challenges that we might come up against and what different, um, what, different aspects of that athlete's physiology that we might want to um, intervene in in order to make them as successful as they can possibly be. And then it also might be a good marker of training adaptation when performed serially over time, but with really rigorous pre-trial controls, because it is very um, sensitive to nutrition and metabolism around the session in which it's measured. Um, I think that there are a, fat metabolism is going to be particularly important in, in events succeeding several hours. So Ironman triathlon is a good example and, and um, stage racing in, in road, road cycling is another good example. Um, and the strategies we might use to intervene with an athlete's fat metab metabolism might vary between different performance levels and also between different sports that have very different metabolic demand so i think they would be the main summary points that that i would be firm with when um summarizing this topic absolutely you know absolutely i think you've done a fantastic job there ed um that's a brilliant 
chat that we've had, if I do say so myself. I think it's been not yeah, just fascinating to talk to you for my own personal <laughs> selfish reasons, because um, I love this stuff, but also I think our listeners will agree that there was loads of gems that came out of that. And um, we look forward to, well, I look forward to having them read your papers uh, as much as I enjoyed reading them, but also your future work. And as you finish up your PhD, maybe we'll get you back to talk about your conclusions on that too because that specifically is a really interesting area as well um i think the whole heat stress thing is, is just mind-boggling um if if people want to follow you over and above obviously i'll link to everything but is is there anywhere that you uh you you, you like to output um social media that sort of thing Blog? yeah i i do a little bit of twitter not not a huge amount i'll be cautious to add you did um tag me in the in the yeah. post uh, earlier in the week um so yeah i do a little bit of a little bit of tweeting brilliant well you're busy in the real world anyway you, 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 you need to get your phd finished you've got time to be yeah. on social media <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um well that's awesome well look thank you ed i i appreciate that um uh if you want to uh catch up with um all these other podcasts that i've referred to uh, i'll be linking to uh, to those with this specific episode but you can find all of those on our on our website which is at www.theiopn.com uh, um and also if you want to uh train and become a highly um highly skilled and highly educated uh, performance nutritionist uh, where we really really get into all this stuff consider our online uh, diploma in performance nutrition um, and all sorts of other things that we get up to at the Institute Performance Nutrition you can learn about at our website. Um, again, it's www.theiopn.com. Thank you for listening and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you guys very soon. <laughs>